Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. All right, on this week's episode of Deconstructed, I'm joined by Maine State Senator Chloe Maxman and her co-author and campaign manager, Canyon Woodward. We're going to talk about their new book, Dirt Road Revival, How to Rebuild Rural Politics and Why Our Future Depends on It. Chloe and Canyon, welcome to Deconstructed. Hi, Ryan. Thanks so much for having us. Thank you. And so, first of all, congratulations on the book and your rollout so far. Uh, you wrote a widely read article in the New York Times that I'd encourage folks to read in an appearance on the Bill Maher show. What's the message yeah. to Democrats from your book? I grew up in a, in a House district and a Senate district in Maine that voted for Trump, and we just went out and started talking to folks and listening to people who did vote to vote for Trump. And, you know, we won in both of those seats. There were Trump signs next to Chloe signs. You can win Trump voters, or you thought you won actual Trump voters over? Yes, we wow. did. And really, this, this conversation around the Democratic Party and its relationship to rural America is an extremely important one. And I think maybe the most important electoral question of our era, if the bottom just continues to fall out in rural America, it's, it's hard to see a path back for Democrats. Yeah, that's totally right. I, th I think people don't, don't realize enough um, the extent to which our democracy privileges the party that can win votes over a wide geographic area. And you look at everything from the Electoral College to the Senate to state legislatures and all of it, the, the rural vote has uh, a magnitude of power, more influence than, than more populous areas. Right. It has this outsized influence. And also, like for most of my life, Democrats were getting beaten in rural areas, but they were still winning you know, high 30s, low 40s. So it was enough to kind of stay in the game. But as they fall into the like low 30s, 20s, and then and then once you get down to the 20s, it feels like there could be, and, and we can, you know, in climate terms, there's could be some kind of feedback cycle, you know, what, that once, once there's no base for Democrats at all in these rural areas, you could just see them almost uh, completely vanish. But also, of course, as you guys know, but the listeners might not, at The Intercept, you know, we published a, a fairly critical review of, of your book by former Maine lawmaker named Andy O'Brien. And there was also this a review published on Medium by, by Julia Brown, who's kind of a Democratic operative, a campaign director uh, for Senate Democrats in Maine that was also a bit critical. And I want to give you guys a chance to respond to all, all of that. But, but first, you know, to kind of set things up, let's talk about who you guys are and you know what the book says what it argues you're both you're both climate activists and and Chloe I actually remember when you were elected to the house in Maine back in 2018 I remember seeing that news and thinking how cool it was that a young climate activist had just flipped a republican seat uh, so let's start with you like how did you f first become political like how did you get into this that's a very good question I grew up in Maine in a small town of 1600 people 
and really everything that I do, all of my work is really rooted in just such a deep love for for my home. I, I love Maine so much. I love its natural beauty and, and everything that has always been here. I just also really love my community and, um, you know, the kindness that I grew up with and and, you know, something that I didn't really appreciate until I went to, to college in Boston at, at Harvard. But just I never really remember politics being a big issue when I was growing up. That's certainly changed now. But back then, it's really shaped so much of how I think about the world and how we can and how we can find that common ground and have relationships, really meaningful, deep relationships with people who we might disagree with when it comes to politics. So um, my my background is mostly in climate change organizing. And the more that I've done work on that front, the more that I've circled back to politics and how so many of the issues that we're confronting, the most dire and urgent issues of our time, they all require political action. And that means that we need good people in office up and down the ballot at every single level of government. And it means that we also need Democrats to be winning more in in rural spaces, the consequences of losing the rural vote on the national level and in so many states um, means, like you said, that state legislatures get captured by Republicans who are trying to undo climate policy, you know, pass extremely pro-life rigid laws, all of the things that we're fighting against right now. And we, we are at that tipping point. So um, in 2016, when Trump was elected, I realized that my my hometown house district went went for Trump, um, you know, and the, the Senate district did go for Trump by a little bit. But, you know, Trump Trump still won where I grew up. And so I decided to move back home and really dig into local politics here to try and understand what was happening in these more rural spaces that are swaying to the right. And if there was a way to turn it around. And Canyon, what about you? How'd you? Because uh, you were co-author of this book, the campaign manager on both these campaigns. How'd you get into this? Where'd you grow up? Yeah, I'm, I'm from a, a super conservative rural part of Western North Carolina, um, Mass and Cawthorns district, actually. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Soon to be uh, former Mark, district. Yes. Yeah. Former representative. Uh, also, Mark Meadows before that, Trump's chief of staff. So unfortunately, um, from from a place where we really know how to pick them. <laughs> uh, but yeah, growing up, you know, I think I, um, you know, I certainly came from from a liberal family and, and we were involved in environmental issues but electoral politics to me was um a bit of a black box it felt like something i generally wanted nothing to do with um i remember one of my super early encounters with it was around a a project of of the dot where they were trying to take out this beautiful historic trust bridge in our community and replace it with a, a big slab of concrete and for some reason like that was the thing that really brought the community together from both sides of the aisle. And we just packed the basement of this Baptist church with probably a, a hundred people and just went at it for three hours in this public hearing. And at the end of it, this guy got up at the front. He was like, I've just been sitting here and listening all evening. I'm one of your county commissioners. And I just want to say that the people have shown up tonight. This is democracy in action. This project is not going to go through. And he got this huge standing ovation <laughs> from us. We were like, yeah, our, our voices have been heard. And then 
uh, he turned around and he voted in favor of the project <laughs> shortly after that. <laughs> and for me, being this like, you know, I think I was probably around 16 at the time. And that was just such a gut punch of like, dang, this is exactly what I've always imagined pol politicians are like. And, and it felt, yeah, it felt really tough. And I think a lot of us have had experiences somewhat like that. And it makes us just want to have nothing to do with it. And it wasn't until getting really involved with climate issues with Chloe in college. She co-founded the fossil fuel divestment campaign at Harvard, and we got to co-coordinate that together. And it wasn't until being part of the climate movement that I realized, whoa, nothing's going to get done on anything that we care about unless we change the people who are in office. And so graduated from college in 2015 and got to work on the Bernie campaign and then, and then with Chloe shortly after. And so the, the book is about lessons that you learned in these, in these two campaigns, the House and then the, and the State House and the State Senate campaign. And so what, what's the difference between the two of them and what was it like getting into the State House campaign? Like what, is a, what, is it, what does it mean to really run for a State House district in, in, in Maine? It was, you know, it was a life-changing experience. We were underdogs by 16 points. The district that, that we were running in, District 88, is, um, has a 16-point Republican advantage. Also, most of the district lies in Lincoln County, which is the oldest county by age in the country. Um, sorry, oldest county by age in the, st in the state, and Maine is the oldest state in the country. You'll have to forgive me. I have COVID, so I'm just I'm working oh. through my COVID fog here. Um, we're, we're, you know, how long how long have you had it? I I tested positive on Tuesday, so I'm I'm on the I'm on the upswing right now. But you know, and, and at the time, Canyon and I were both 25, so we were facing some pretty interesting dynamics. But I think you know we were both just so rooted in this vision for for what politics could look like in a, in a rural space. You know, what like could we build a movement? All of these questions that that just felt so exciting to, to unpack. It, and we, you know, it was an interesting dynamic because we had a primary first. So for the first few months of door knocking since um, at the time we had closed primaries in Maine, but I just fixed that with one of my bills. So I was only talking to Democrats and it was really easy. We won, I mean, it wasn't easy in the moment, but in retrospect, we won the primary with 80% of the vote. You know, we broke record turnout. And uh, after that, we started to talk with Republicans and independents. And because the district was so conservative, we were talking with very conservative folks. And, um, you know, it was through that experience and having to talk with so many people who were really different than I was and that, that we were, it just completely opened my world as a someone who identifies as progressive as to everyone who I feel like has been left behind because we have so much in common with many folks who are voting for Trump, you know, who, who have voted for Trump. Um, but sometimes those conversations just aren't happening. It was, it was really eye-opening every day to be talking with, with folks who had literally never been contacted by a Democratic candidate or canvasser in their entire voting history. So, you know, having those conversations being, you know, the first Democratic campaign to have these conversations with folks, finding common ground and building relationships and, and being able to win that district. I mean, it was inspiring. It was it was hopeful. Um, and it, it just meant to me that there is space. There is space to do this work, even though sometimes we feel like it's been lost. 
And and maybe Canyon, maybe you can take this one. So for people who don't aren't in the nuts and bolts of of campaigns, can you talk a little bit about these the ideas of a voter universe or a, a lists of voters, and talk about the the kind of disagreements that you had with the party over over which which doors you were going to prioritize or which which people that you were going to going to hit? Yeah. So when you're campaigning, obviously you don't, you just don't have the capacity to go and knock every single door. So you, you have to home in on, on the folks that, that you think might be, might be movable. And, you know, that's called the voter universe. And that'll look a lot different depending on what the district is in the state Senate district that Chloe won in 2020. It was, it was a lot more moderate. So that was a different universe than the House district, which was super Republican in 2018. So to win in a district like that, you really have to expand the universe out to be talking to to some folks who are fairly, fairly hardcore conservatives and, and trying to move them to vote for Chloe. And really the, you know, I think the disagreement with with the party was it was a, it was definitely a little bit overblown. It was mostly just that we were expanding our reach and reallocating a lot of our resources into the what's called field organizing, which is the the volunteer side of the campaign to go and knock on tens of thousands of doors, which which is not kind of standard party for campaigns, at least in in Maine. And so we. We knocked every door that was in in the state party's universe, but then we also expanded way, way beyond that and um, went out to to win over lots of lots of more conservative folks because because that was necessary, especially in 2018. And so Julia Brown, the the Democratic campaigner, who I guess so what what's her role? She she oversaw every she kind of oversaw every state senate race. Is that right? And yeah, she, she was helped. the the executive director for this Senate Democratic Campaign Committee. Right. And so her her kind of counter was that her argument was she said, "Look, if if they wanted to talk to every single Trump voter in the district, we decided, look, they have so much energy. It's a small enough district they can probably hit those doors, but we don't think it's necessarily going to be useful and we're going to we're going to have our volunteers make sure that that you know union members and others you know hit all of the doors of the pers- persuadable people and she says that they've done all sorts of uh, you know analysis to try to figure out if there was any upside in hitting some of these hardcore trump uh doors and they can't they say they can't find it w- what did you find when you were going door to door in these places where the the kind of metrics tell you like this is a person that's voted Republican for 20 years, they're not, you know, they might be nice to you in person, but they're not going to vote for you. What did, what did you guys find? Yeah. I mean, we found, we found a, a ton of, of space for connecting and shared values and, and common ground where a lot of folks would expect there to be none. Um, you know, you walk into someone with a Trump sign on their yard and a lot of people would just turn the car around and, and not even bother knocking, but there were Chloe signs going up next to Trump signs remarkably all over the district. And in 2018, especially in a, in a district that had a 16 point Republican advantage, you had to have, you had to win a ton of those folks over. Mm -hmm. And it was, 
it wasn't quite the uphill battle against that kind of red lean in the in the Senate district, but it was going up against, you know, the Senate minority leader who was a really popular incumbent. And so it was still it was still having to mm-hmm. to win a lot of those folks over. And um, you know, we Chloe knocked a phenomenal amount of doors. Um we didn't we didn't ignore any of you know any of the folks that the party would normally go after. We just expanded our reach by by talking to more folks and getting dozens and dozens of volunteers involved with the campaign rather than spending all of, all of our money on consultants and you know mailers and TV ads etc. And and Chloe if you if you did find anything that worked like was it case by case or was there anything that you found resonated more than anything else in these hardcore kind of Trump houses? Well I think that's the interesting thing about it is that it did feel like there were some common themes that emerged in many conversations. And, you know, one of the things that struck me the most is that, you know, I've knocked about 20,000 doors in the past two cycles and over over 13,000 doors in 2020. And so I felt like I got a pretty good sense of where people were at. And the the most common thing that I heard was just, you know, if, if people were Democrat or Republican, you know, whatever part of the spectrum people were on, there was the shared frustration with the political system, the shared sense that we have been abandoned, that we have been let down by by politics, you know, and while we, of course, have amazing people in office who I, I respect, you know, that's just the, that's just the general sense. And so it was, it was interesting because I, that's why I ran for office in the first place, you know, as kind of like a young, disaffected progressive who cares about the future of everything and didn't feel like politics was doing enough on the climate crisis. That's why, that's why I ran for office in the first place. And so when I heard folks who were, you know, very conservative saying the same thing, it was like, okay, we have something that, that we can work together on. And, you know, our relationship was built around values and not necessarily party. Um, Because I think that the, you know, the party narrative is really designed to be divisive. And instead, we focused on what can unify us. And I also just wanted to say that, you know, we're not the only ones in Maine or across the country using these tactics um, and these strategies or having these conversations or talking with Trump voters. Um, You know, but I think that across the country, we just need more investment in rural, rural politics, rural progressive folks running for office. It's a very different type of campaigning. It requires more resources and a different type of support. And it's so critically important in this moment in history. And as Canyon and I chugged along the campaign trail, we were just so struck by the conversations that we were having that we just started to, you know, write things down and take voice memos and and talk about it. And, and, and you know, it turned into this this really powerful story of, of how we can reconnect um, and and build something really powerful and meaningful in rural spaces. Yeah, that and I think that's exactly right. And I think it's it's kind of a battle within the Democratic Party a little bit. For are we are we the party of consultants and the establishment, or are we the party of grassroots organizing and 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 really investing? in communities and you know that's that's what a young barack obama understood with his campaign in 2008 that's the vein that 
Bernie Sanders and AOC and and Stacey Abrams and and so many others are are pushing with a ton of success. And there's resistance to that, understandably, but um, for us, that's really the most most hopeful path forward, especially in in these rural areas. And let, let me get, and either one of you could take this. Let me get your response to one of Andy's Andy O'Brien's more significant criticisms. That basically, he he basically he says that. When you think of a, like a Trump area and the dirt roads and the MAGA hats and the and the rebel flags, there's like a certain image that's com- that's conveyed. But these this district, the House and the Senate district, kind of along the coast of Maine, where there's absolutely a lot of rural areas and a, a ton of poverty, but also a ton of kind of wealthy liberal enclaves. And his argument was that in order to win, you guys actually mostly ran up the numbers in the blue areas rather than kind of win- flipping. Uh, Trump towns. Now, in 2018, there was a huge blue wave, and obviously, you had to close the gap on, you know, what had been a double-digit uh, Republican seat before. And he makes the he makes the point that it's true to say that you were the first Democrat elected in that district ever, but that that district was brand new; it had only existed since 2014, and that there had been a lot of Democrats who had represented it before that. And that there are Democrats who represent all the districts around it, and so that it wasn't as unique and and shocking as you guys were saying. So, what what's the response to to that claim of his? Yeah, uh, um, I mean, it wasn't a new district, but if <laughs> if you go back and you look at at the results from recent elections going back, you know, several cycles, um, as long as it's available online, you you see the same trend in the specific towns that make up the district. Chloe did flip Jefferson and Whitefield, which made up, um, you know, half of that district in, in 2018. She flipped those, um, which had gone for Trump in, in 2016. And she was the only Democrat in a contested race to win in Jefferson. So, you know, it's, <laughs> I think, you know, I think Andy had, had a bone to pick. It, it wasn't, wasn't completely factual what, what he said. It was a huge uphill hill battle in those districts. And yeah, Lincoln County is, is a really interesting case study. You know, it's, it's not like a deep red county in, in uh, Western North Carolina, for example, you know, rural America is not a monolith, um, and and Maine is interesting in particular. But it is an interesting kind of microcosm, and it's it's gotten some national attention in that respect. Political analysts at the Hill in 2020 identified it as one of 10 counties in the country to look at with the 2020 election because of just this interesting mix of like working class, you know, farmers and lobstermen and and like you point out some of the some of the, some of the wealthier communities on the coast and how those dynamics are playing out. And, and I, I guess the reason that this is important is because it goes to the question of what lessons what lessons can be learned and you know what can be what can be scaled from your race. The, you know, another argument that he laid out was that the state party invested heavily in the state senate race and so what it wasn't the case that like this wasn't a, a seat that no that nobody thought could be could be won and and in your book you guys are i think are pretty open about what can be scaled and what can't be scaled uh and i think that some people have maybe taken 
an impression from the book that isn't necessarily your responsibility. You know, you you because you have been clear that there are serious limits to what you know can be drawn out of this and applied in other other districts. So what what do you think are the things that you can draw and what are the things that are kind of unique to that area? I think first of all, you know, we wrote the book and embarked on these two campaigns out of a deep love for for our rural hometowns and for the Democratic Party and for democracy in general. We are really only interested in in putting out a positive vision and really just you know, feel disappointed by the more kind of personal, the more personal attacks trying to try and tear down our work. And, you know, I don't, we don't really want to get into the tit or tat of that. And I think we all just deserve, deserve better when we're talking about a path forward and we can all do our work the, the way that we want to and treat each other with, with grace and respect. I think, you know, there, our work is not only informed by our experiences going door to door and having tens of thousands of conversations with voters. It's also informed by the campaigns that we've worked on in the past, you know, Canaan's experience working in the South on political campaigns. You know, we've brought a lot of experience to bear. And through that, we can kind of see, you know, this is what works in Maine. This is what works in smaller legislative districts. And these are some of the themes that that do resonate in other parts of rural America that we know from our experience and the dozens and dozens of candidates and campaigns and organizers that we work with in other states and who have reached out to us. This, I think the most important one is this, is this idea that there is so much space to find common ground, but we can't find that space unless we are having door-to-door conversations with folks in rural places. You know, we and we look back at national democratic narratives like in 2018 Tom Perez who was the then chair of the DNC saying you can't door knock in rural America you know and just kind of how that has trickled down all across the country and in the ways that um, campaigns have been run and just the lack of infrastructure in in a lot of rural places you know that that is to our detriment and it inhibits us from from having the capacity to to do a lot of door knocking in rural places, I think we're you know I think there's some great examples here in Maine and across the country of of that trend changing and you know we we're huge fans of People's Action and the deep canvassing program that they've done out in the Midwest. You know things are changing now and and we're just joining that movement and saying we need we need more we need more money we need more volunteers we need more resources to go out and have these conversations all across the country. Of course, we can't win over everyone. There's not going to be common ground with every single person that we talk to. But I think there's more common ground that we than we think there is. And literally, the only way to find it is face to face on someone's porch. So um, that's going to require a pretty significant shift in how we think about campaigning and how our campaigns are structured and where, you know, how our campaigns are funded. And, and that's, you know, that's the call to action here. And that, that Tom Perez quote that you can't knock doors in rural America, I think is really a perfect encapsulation of the way that the, the National Party is failing so badly to just understand rural America on a, even, the most, even the most basic level. And I think that, that is, that's kind of the right element of the party to be in tension with. And it's, it sort of feels like, and let's try to unpack this and tell me what you think, it sort of feels like the reaction in Maine to to the book, the kind of the de- the defensiveness and the and the pushback 
is different than the reaction from the National Party, which is the National Party really is ignoring rural America. I think the it might my read was that the the main party just felt defensive about it because they said, look, we're the most rural state in the country and we control the governor's mansion, we control the state house, we control the state senate. Our Senate leader is, you know, represents a hardcore Trump district. You know, is a, a Bernie guy and a, what a trade unionist. And we do talk to Trump voters. We do win Trump voters. We do know how to win in rural America, and we, and we prove that by being in control in in Maine. And so, the disagreement maybe is over. Just simple strategy, like what's if you if you can only talk to a thousand voters, is it better to talk to kind of moderate Republicans who you could who you could win over, or populist Trump people who you can win over? And maybe that's a good way to to ask the question. Like if 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 you could if you only had a week, you can only not you can only hit a thousand doors, and it's one or the other. Which would you go for? And do you think that my framing of that is right? Do you think where some that's where some of that reaction is coming from? Uh, I, I think that, let's see, you know, Maine, Maine has so many awesome examples of, of folks winning, Democrats running and winning in, in fairly rural, more conservative districts. And, and so it is different in that respect. And, and I think a lot of, a lot of the pushback, which has really just been from, from a very, you know, small close-knit group of, of kind of the democratic establishment there is just folks taking things a little bit a little bit personal and getting a little bit petty but you know the, the reality is we're we are worried about about control of the house and senate there and the governor's race in large part because of of the rural areas so it's not like we have it all figured out but we do have mm-hmm. we do have good lessons for the, for the rest of the country and i think i think it's not a trade-off between those two options are our approach is folding them all in together and saying we we have to build more we have to build stronger volunteer bases in in every district so that we have the capacity to go out and reach both groups because that's what we did in our campaigns um we we took the suggested universe of the state party and we reached every single one of those people but what made us different is we had a huge volunteer base and, of course, a powerhouse in Chloe. And we expanded way beyond that to reach a ton more folks. Um, and so, you, yeah, it's really about doing both and investing in, in the grassroots so that you can um, expand your reach by, by a ton. Yeah, Cl- Chloe, what do you think of that, that framing? I think Canyon is spot on. He's so smart. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think there's for sure so many incredible examples of Maine. And, and I do think, I, I mean, when I, when I decided to move back to Maine after college, so many of my mentors were like, you are never going to do anything for Maine. Maine, you know, you can't change the world for Maine. You can't make a difference for Maine. And I mean, so many people said that to me. I've always believed that Maine is and can be a leader, you know, and we certainly are when it comes to really like getting folks elected from from all across the state. You know, we're we're writing about two very specific experiences that we've had in districts that have been very tricky for Democrats to win. 
And, um, you know, and our message is really about the nation, you know, and recognizing that we need power in Maine, yes, but we need power in state legislatures across the country, and we need to be protected at the national level as well. And the consequences of not looking beyond Maine are just really too dire. So our, our message is really is about what's happening nationwide um, and not just not just in Maine. And and I think it's, you know, it's no secret that Democrats struggle in rural places and how that's becoming a calculus that is is more and more urgent for the National Party to really confront, um, you know, and that's that's the challenge for this year in the midterms and even more in 2024. Things are things are not certain. Things are not set in stone. We have a lot of work to do. And that's what you know, that's what we devote ourselves to. And that's what you know, that's so much of what we've learned and experienced over the last few years. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. One of the, the criticism that did resonate me with is actually around that exact point, this, this upcoming midterm. You, you have people saying, okay, we're very glad that she flipped this seat, but now she's stepping down after writing this book and putting the seat at risk, whereas if she had run again, she had a very good chance of holding, holding onto the seat, could cost us the Senate. And so that, what, what, like why, why, why step down? Um, I know you're, 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 you're creating an organization that'll work on Democrats in rural areas. Is that right? Or like what's, what's next for you and why not continue the fight in, in this area of Maine? You know, I think, um, First of all, if the entire Maine Senate hinges on one race, that's not a great situation for, for for anybody, you know. And I, I think and it's also not fair. To, it's it's unfair, I think, to, for yeah. people to have to like live their lives based on uh, the fate of a particular chamber. But but on the other hand, it's a reality. I mean, Kenya and I just started a nonprofit C four called Dirt Road Organizing to support lots of folks running for office and doing rural organizing work. There's a lot more power in supporting five, six, 20 folks like us um, all across rural America than there is in just getting me elected over and over again. I'm working to get another amazing young woman elected in my seat. And, you know, that's really exciting and and supporting her and, you know, making sure that she's got all of our volunteer database and, and all of that good stuff. You know, and it's just being in the legislature as a young person is is really tricky. And it's it's pretty we're a part time citizen legislature here in Maine. And so it's pretty tricky to 
to be able to do broader work year round and serve in the legislature. And, and I and I don't need to be the one with the power, don't need to be the one in the spotlight. I want to really make sure that there are lots of folks who have all the support and resources that they need to get elected in Maine and across the country. And I think that's going to have an effect that's just a lot, a lot bigger than me spending the rest of, of the year just getting myself elected. It's there's right. there's lots of different ways to to fight for our democracy. And um, that's what we're going to do. I'm also curious from both your perspective because you you had you, you've had your feet you know squarely planted in the in the climate act activism world and not just climate acts but in, in in Harvard and all of that all of what that entails then you spent years talking to tens of th- you know 20,000 plus people uh, just ordinary people about politics and I'm curious like what you would tell people in kind of the activist world who haven't done that because that is an experience that I that really I think changes people and shapes the way that they understand the public the way that they understand what they're what they're trying to do because it's so different than Twitter you know on 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 Twitter somebody says something that's a little bit off key everybody piles on them and drives them into the ground and celebrates and and moves on but when you're talking to somebody in person and you hear that same thing that you but but you're looking the person in the eye and you're and you're seeing oh this is a person that's actually coming from a a, a place of good faith they're they're try, like they're trying to get to the right place they mean well i disagree with them here let me see how i can approach them and find find common ground which is such a different experience than than the kind of online world or 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 some of the exchanges that people have when they're just rooted only in the activist space. So like what lessons have you learned that you would impart back to your, your kind of comrades back in the movement? Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, I love that question. It's such a, it's such an important one. Um, I think, yeah, I think for, for me, one of the biggest ones is just realizing what a, what a huge privilege my, you know, my education has been both, you know, both in school and out of school in those activist spaces where we do a ton of talking and theorizing and, and learning together through the work and, and you know, learning a different language to talk about the world and these issues than, you know, than I had growing up in, in my community. Um, and then going back, going back into these spaces and realizing that, you know, that this, this language that I have to talk about things doesn't necessarily connect with, with folks at every door that I go to. And that that's not, that's not because the person I'm talking to is, is a bad person by any means. It's, um, it's, it's just that there's a gap there in like, trying to jump from zero to 60 and you, you just have to, you have to have empathy on both sides for where folks are coming from. You know, I think on, on the right, it, it feels like folks on the left, um, you know, are, are really extreme and that they will jump down your, your throat for saying a single, a single wrong word or, or just like not saying something quite right, even if, if you have good intentions and, you know, on the left, I think we have this view of 
of all <laughs> Trump voters sometimes as being racist and sexist. And, and that's just not, not the case at all. But when we're in these echo chambers of an activist group or our Twitter feed, you know, we're, we're rewarded for behavior of kind of like slapping people down and, and dropping the mic on them or what have you. I mean, what we really need is a lot more empathy and listening and trying to like hear where folks are actually coming from. And, and when we do that, you know, I think that we, we find the common goodness, the, the shared humanity that really most people share of, of wanting the best for each other and for, for their communities. And Chloe, what would you tell your kind of your old activist self? Um, and what, or what are you telling people today that you l- learned from, from the dirt road and what was it a, was it a process or how, how quickly did things kind of start to dawn on you as, as you started hitting these doors? You know, I definitely have so many memories of, you know, doing our divestment work at Harvard, for example, or joining, you know, large, large climate justice marches and, you know, feeling that power of the community that I was in and feeling like the rest of the world and people in politics weren't listening and, you know, having that thought of like, why don't people agree with us? We're so right. And I think it's, I think it's so easy to feel that, especially these days when we're just kind of living in, in echo chambers of, of our, of our own thinking. And we're just kind of getting validated all the time. But uh, when, when I started to talk with folks who were just so different than me, but we had the same values, you know, it was just, it was just kind of a, a wake up call for my, for my own self. And, and I certainly didn't start out the experience knowing how to have the conversation. Sometimes I just, I didn't know what to say. And so my, the only thing I could do is just to listen. And through that act of listening, which seems so simple, I really began to understand a different perspective to understand how my own judgments and prejudices have blocked me from from empathy, even though I consider myself an empathetic person. And so we can when we can let down our guard a little bit and, and just have the conversation, even if there's disagreement, even if the person doesn't vote the way that I would like, that conversation is so meaningful. And I, I just feel like with things so divisive right now and, and so heated, um, you know, I don't think it's naive, but it's it's my form of hope is that the only way forward is to have these kinds of kind and empathetic conversations that they're not built on extraction of information from a voter. They're not built on manipulation. They're not built on a transaction. They are built on an honest to goodness face-to-face conversation where you are just telling each other what you think. And you know, how far can we get if if that is our strategy across the nation as we're running campaigns? And so much of this debate around the approach to rural America that your that your book sparked uh, seemed to not actually get into the question of of what the party was saying. It was more about who to talk to and um how to talk to them, like in what form, but what about the what about the message itself? Like, what is, is there something that Democrats are doing wrong when it comes to the overall uh, message or platform or kind of substantial program that they're running on that that needs to that needs to change? Uh, I'm curious to hear hear what Chloe thinks, but I think my my answer to that is is nationally, especially um, as a party, it's. It's less an issue of of what we're 
saying or not saying and and more of an issue of are we even in these spaces at all having a conversations you know back to your point at the very beginning of this conversation about kind of the worry of the bottom dropping out of our margins in rural america you know you look at as recently as 2009 there was no um the partisan lean of rural voters was evenly split and and now it's a 16 point republican advantage and i attribute so much of that to the democrats just not running strong campaigns and investing in grassroots organizing in rural spaces we just haven't been present enough having the conversations and going door to door and so what that's created is a huge huge void that fox news and right-wing personalities and Trump have come into and, and filled and and that's led to a lot of extremism just because we kind of seeded that ground and and haven't been there to push back on those narratives. Yeah, Chloe, what do you think? Again, I think that Canyon is spot on. I mean, I think, you know, I we've we've had this experience as Democrats campaigning in more red places and we know we know that other other candidates have had the same experience too, where you're like, I'm a Democrat, but I'm not like the national Democrats. I'm a different type of Democrat, you know? And so I think there is this space to really kind of reframe what it means to be a Democrat. And so that it, it is kind of improving the national party and the national reputation from the ground up instead of the top down. I don't know if the, if the top down is really going to work anymore, you know, like we've been saying, all, so much of this is about grassroots organizing and grassroots conversation that can slowly change the way that we're thinking about these issues. You know, I, I think our our theory of change is really rooted in the Democratic Party and, and getting more Democrats elected and really expanding the party as well and saying, you know, hey, Democrats, like so many of the Republicans that we've written off, it doesn't have to be that way. And we can find this common ground and it doesn't have to be based on party warfare. It can be based on a united, positive vision for the future where we're all just fighting for what we think is best for our families. I mean, that's the core of it. I think there's so much anger and strife and so much of it is so needed and and so justified. But I think in a lot of these everyday conversations that are happening on the campaign trail, people are just coming at it from the space of, you know, what's best for my daughter? What's best for my child who's in school right now? What's best for my for my mother-in-law who's aging in place? You know, what's best for my family? And I think it's so easy to lose sight of that. But we can we we can we can fix it. We can fight back. We just got to we just got to build grassroots movements in spaces where we might not expect them. And I wonder if, if, and this is this will sound pessimistic. I wonder if the 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 brand of the Democratic Party can even be revived in in some of these areas. I think in Maine it's still strong. In New England, you know, generally it's strong. Even in in rural areas, I I grew up in a very rural area of Maryland and. There, when I was growing up, the Democratic Party was still, you know, still there were still these kind of blue dog Democrats, and there was a legacy of of Democratic power. Today, in those areas, it's very hard to find anybody outside of the, the kind of very liberal potluck club that would even remotely want to associate with the Democratic Party. And I've talked to some candidates who are running in different rural areas of the of the country as Democrats, and they won't they won't say it on the record, but they'll say that 
if they could somehow manage to run as an independent, yet still kind of have the the backing of of the party apparatus, they'd be so much better off. That the brand of the Democratic Party, uh, for better or for worse, for, for whoever's fault it is, has just become so fundamentally toxic in some of these rural areas that it's hard to see them going going back from there. That, like I said, that's not the case in Maine. Obviously, they've got a trifecta, they, which they might lose, as you said, in twenty twenty two, big red wave coming. But what but what do you think is 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 it as is it as bad as that in some areas? Yeah, I mean, I, I, that's a good question. It's a big question. I, I don't know the answer to it. I think. I mean, what Canyon? What about where you're from? Like, the, I can't imagine the Democratic Party has much of a as much it, of a shot, <laughs> no matter what kind of candidate they put up. Yeah, it, it's not a good brand, but but it's not like the Republican Party is is a great brand either. You know, there's I think. Uh, what comes to mind for me is just like there's a there's a really broad frustration with with the people who are in office and have been in office for for years and years and both parties and just this system that doesn't feel like it's representing us and you know I think I think party leadership on on both sides has a lot to do with that of of just these folks who get in office and have stayed in office for years and years and years and just a really strong inertia that that has led led to where we're at today and I, I won't give up on it completely you know I think I think there's a I think it can be turned around to some extent but I do I do also think things like ranked choice voting like we have in in Maine and some other states where that allows independents or third party candidates to run without being a spoiler are are important reforms or like fusion voting like like they have in New York where you can mm-hmm. get the be the nominee of multiple parties you can be the nominee for the working families party and the democratic party isn't there kind of like a an independent nearby you Chloe who's who's a progressive but doesn't isn't part of the party here in Maine yeah yeah there are there are to there are quite a few independents in the main house who you know kind of buck party politics and pave their own way and uh, maine is also very famous for angus king our who was our mm-hmm. governor and is now our one of our u.s senators who's also an independent do you feel like that is almost a requirement in some parts of the country for democrats or for progressives to make a revival i don't know you know i don't know if it's a, re- a requirement per se i think What's more important is having a values-based politics and, you know, trying to get away from this really intense party identity that prevents us from having conversations across the aisle. And, you know, one of the things that um, I've been working on here in Maine in, in my in my term here has been open primaries. You know, Maine, Maine hasn't had open primaries before, so independents have been left out of of really deciding who's on their November ballot. And so we're, we're changing that, which means that a third of Maine voters are now going to be able to vote in primaries and decide, you know, what what does November look like? And maybe, you know, that will also help tilt things away from this hyper-partisan situation that we're in. I I really think that it's okay to run as a Democrat. I think it's okay to run as a party. I think it's just about how we how we talk about it, how we approach it, you know, how we make sure that our allegiance is to the people and the values that we are talking about instead of to a party infrastructure. 
Yeah, I think that's totally right. And and being, you know, being will, willing and able to critique the party and the status quo and communicate to voters that, you know, that you are not <laughs> the Democratic Party or you are not the Republican Party. And I think that that was a large part of the appeal of of folks like Bernie uh, or even Trump to, to rural voters is, you know, Bernie, Bernie was an independent for his whole life, but he, he ran as a Democrat and, and was clear that he had lots of par- problems with the party, but that um, that was the best, best vehicle for his campaign. And Chloe, before I let you go, for folks who don't know, your, your mom's Shoshana Zuboff, the author of uh, the great book, The Age of Surveillance Capitalism. It's great. I have not totally finished it, uh, but it's, uh, very, <laughs> it's very good. And when I realized that you were her, her daughter, the first thing I thought about was, you know, she she writes about uh, your home burning down. Um, I guess when you were in when high school, it just sounded like an absolutely um, terrifying experience. And I'm glad that everybody was was safe when that when it happened, despite the what sounds like the total destruction of your childhood home. So I'm sorry to, that you had to go through that. Thank you. Yeah, it was definitely an unpleasant experience. <laughs> I, can, I, can, I can only imagine. Uh, but Chloe and Canyon, uh, thank you so much for joining me. Yeah, thanks a ton, Ryan. Really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you, Ryan. That was Chloe Maxman and Canyon Woodward, and that's our show. Their book is Dirt Road Revival, How to Rebuild Rural Politics and Why Our Future Depends on It. Deconstructed is a production of First Look Media and The Intercept. Our producer is Zach Young. Laura Flynn is our supervising producer. The show was mixed by William Stanton. Our theme music was composed by Bart Warshaw. Betsy Reed is The Intercept's editor-in-chief. And I'm Ryan Grimm, D.C. Bureau Chief of The Intercept. If you'd like to support our work, go to theintercept.com slash give. Your donation, no matter what the amount, makes a real difference. And if you enjoy this podcast, be sure to also check out Intercepted, as well as Murderville, which is now in its second season. And the most recent episode of Intercepted is is fascinating. James Risen is on there telling the story of how a trusted intermediary lawyer that he had been using betrayed him and collaborated with the FBI to stop his reporting. And we play recordings of the FBI agent who was the handler in that case. So definitely check that out. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to this show so you can hear it every week. And please go leave us a rating or review. It helps people find the show. If you want to give us additional feedback, email us at podcasts at theintercept.com. Thanks so much. See you soon. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary. Not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great, too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. 